see, I was I was young. My first summer in Gravelly, I was three months old, and my father took me. My first experience on the beach was he walked me out on the dock as a three-month-old, leaned over, held me over the water, and dropped me into the water. And I dropped down and popped. My mother screaming at the shore saying, what the fuck is wrong? What's wrong with you? You killed my baby. And I popped right up and swam. And my father jumped in next to me, and he said to my mother, he said, I don't want this baby to be afraid of the water. So I was swimming before I could walk. Take one. Maxi's Taxi interviews and sound portraits of people you've never heard of. Richard Maxson here, known to some as Dickie Maxson, and with this podcast I'll be bringing you interviews and stories of people that you probably have never heard of. Many, but not all, will come out of my lovely little hometown, which is a mishmash of Lake Wobegon and Grover's Corners. Most importantly, this podcast will not be rambling conversations with my subjects, but rather a form of journalism that is an amalgamation of Studs Terkel, an old-time journalist and interviewer, and This American Life, the popular radio show. The stories will be 95% of my subject or guest, and just 5% at most of myself. Now, let's get down to business. First off, these shows are not meant for young ears or for the overly sensitive. There is profanity and adult subjects are discussed. So with that warning, the first couple of episodes will feature a guy who ran around just a few streets over in my little hometown of Highlands, New Jersey. Ricky Hebert passed away last December, but I wanted to remember him with some recordings we did about five or six years ago. I wanted others to hear how infectious his personality could be and to understand why he's always been on my Mount Rushmore of funniest guys. Ricky started life as a Brooklyn boy before arriving at Gravelly Point which at the time was just a dirt road with nothing but tiny summer bungalows on it. My parents were very lucky. They had friends who discovered, I don't know how they discovered Gravelly Point, but they invited my parents down the summer before our first summer. My parents came back saying it was fabulous. We summered in Highlands. It was spectacular i loved highlands couldn't get enough it was a it was like it was it was a it was the best place oh it was the best place to be we used to pass the pirate ship in cliffwood beach stop at john's bargain store pick up flip-flops and a pail and a shovel my sisters would get bathing caps and water shoes we and we'd go down the highlands and we it was only a cold water bungalow there was no hot water there was only one shower two better two rooms and my mother used to have to take the diapers in a pail and wash them out in the shower I mean, it was it was rough living, but we were in heaven. It was uh -huh. wonderful. So they decided, my brother, older brothers and sisters supposedly convinced my parents to move to Highlands. They wanted to live there year-round. Because so, we were the first family on Gravelly Point. My parent, my father, Doug, he put the water line in so we could live there year-round. We were the first ones. We blazed the trail. We moved in and lived there year-round. We were not going back to Brooklyn because we bought the bungalow next door. My parents bought it, winterized it, and moved us all kit and caboodle down here. And it was uh, 1963, the coldest winter on record. We have home movies of the waves freezing, mid-wave. Um, and that's salt water. Oh, I was horrible. I remember crying, and I would say, it, and plus, because it was so cold the first winter we were there, and we didn't have radi radiators. We had um, forced air, or right. horrible, and a bungalow that wasn't insulated well. And it was freezing. It was freezing. That winter was really, we had, the wind, temperature went down. <laughs> we would go to sleep with our coats on. And I remember thinking, I will never be warm again. I want to go back to Brooklyn. This jersey's terrible. I'm frozen. <laughs> the water freezes. It, the water froze. You guys, it's, you guys are like pioneers. We, well, my, we my mother used to say, we, we blazed the trail. I was like, fuck blazing the trail. I want to go back to Brooklyn. <laughs> you know the song, shine a light. Oh, I want to go back to Brooklyn. I sang that every day. Oh, I want to go back to Brooklyn. And I was only little. My older brothers and sisters were like, you don't even know what Brooklyn was like. I was like, yes, I did. It wasn't like here. I hated it. Was, it was warm. I know I hated Well, we moved down and it was culture shock because we had never experienced Highlands once everybody left. There was nobody. I can remember walking down to by Bay Avenue and standing there and waiting hours till you saw a car drive by. A car. If you saw two cars, it was a it was a traffic jam. 
I'm serious. A car. If somebody drove up Gravelly Point, I would go running and I'd wave and I'd blow kisses at the car because I was so happy there was somebody else. There are many people who went to Gravelly who, like, they talk about, gee, the first experience they had, they said, it was, what a nice, friendly place. This little fat boy just waved, blew kisses at me and waved to me as I pulled, as I drove up the road. Then he came over and sang a song and rolled his belly. You know, and I'm like, I was that kid. I was lonely. We, we, we don't see many outsiders. <laughs> When we came down from Brooklyn, we were so friggin' bored in the winter. We became the puzzle fa jigsaw puzzle family. We would do jigsaw puzzles, Borrowed and then we for kids. no, no, no. When that's your entertainment, all of a sudden you learn to love jigsaw puzzles. Really? Oh my God! We couldn't wait to get. And my it became my father would do the edge, and we found jigsaw puzzles that were shaped, which was unusual. And then my my we my father would. Um, we'd have flipping contests because once you have it done for the week, and this was your entertainment for the week. Yeah, right. He'd buy them in Katz's, right. you know, or whatever. It was that was your entry when you spent you blew your nut you blew your nut already. If we'd have flipping contests, people would, I was only a kid, so I wasn't allowed to do. it. He'd try to flip the puzzle without it falling apart. Oh, yeah. And then we finally got the bright idea to my father would put paper on it and glue, and we'd hang them. So we had a matador. A woman with a flamenco, you know, with a big dress. Yeah, yeah. We had them all over that, all over the living room, all our, our puzzles. But I don't get. What are you talking about? Flipping them? I never heard of that. We would after the the jigsaw puzzle is completely done, you'd flip it over to the blank side because you because what else do you do with a puzzle that's very complete? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't like you know. It was. It was. A, it was. A, it was showing your skill. Oh. If you could flip the whole thing over without it breaking apart, okay. because sometimes it would break apart, which meant now it was upside down, and you had to put it together with no. Okay. No, no form of reference. So basically, it's another way of inventing fun. Yeah, we did. We did water. I didn't know my older brothers and sisters did water drinking contests where they could have killed each other, and I was only little, and I I witnessed it where they they'd keep drinking shot glasses of water, and unbeknownst to my parents, it wasn't like my parents, you know, sanctioned yeah, yeah. it. And my brother, my sister would always say to my brother, "I'll give you a nickel if you drink one more," <laughs> and he'd drink one more, and then we'd have a bucket he'd throw up in, and then he'd look up and he'd say to her. I'll give you a dime if you drink one more. And she'd be like, no. and she'd drink it and throw up. We're lucky they didn't die. You know how dangerous that is? I never even heard. I never heard of kids ever doing it. But we that. we had, you have to remember, we came from Flatbush. It was, there was a lot to do. We, they moved us to a backwater town where there was nothing, absolutely nothing to do. I was lucky. I, I, I learned, I discovered life in books. Because I would have gone batshit nuts. I used to beg to go back to Brooklyn. Anybody was talking about going going into the city, to, if they lived in Brooklyn, I'd say, please, can I go, Mommy? Please, can I go? She dropped me off at grandma, Grandma's house. She doesn't mind. My grandmother didn't mind. I, I had just gotten to the point where I was allowed to walk around the neighborhood a little. When we first moved from Brooklyn, my mother wouldn't let us out of the house. Oh, so you were oh my God, it was terrible. And I begged my mother. I finally got to, I hung out. It was, there were three of us, Eddie Flannery, me, and Linda Mayers. We were in first grade OLPH, and we could hang out, but it was because they were on Ocean Avenue, and I it was like it was like a maybe we had like an hour to do it. Yeah, and I would I was so happy because Linda Mayer's mother um, would let her walk to church on Sundays, and I'd walk with her, and I was I finally got a little freedom to walk away, get away from my brothers and sisters. Yeah, and Linda Mayer's was so cool. She taught me how to you get if you got a dime for for the collection plate, you put it in your pocket coat that has a hole, and you put it down, and you and you try to fish it out all during. When, they're asked, when they ask for the donation, but if you can't get it out, that means you can stop at Hershey's and get penny candy after, after church. So how often did you not get it out? Oh, she never got her dime out. I didn't have my, we never, I was poor. I'm from a big family. We didn't get, we didn't get envelopes. My mother said they, they all went in one envelope. Linda Mayers is my best bud. Eddie Flattering too. I used to play G.I. Joe's with him. We'd play G.I. Joe's. We'd play war. We would stage... G.I. Joe, we'd have ma major battles in the Roxy's lot underneath yeah. the rowboats. We would spend weeks preparing because you could, the, the, the rowboats were turned upside down. So you had, they were protected, their land was protected. We'd have, we'd build foxholes for a, a million people. We'd have battle plans that we, you know, we'd fight each other for hours upon hours. And we'd, it would take us sometimes weeks to set up. We'd battle for a long time. It wasn't like, you know, an hour. And if we had to get called home, so we'd gather our stuff and we'd go back. It was, it was always going to be there. They had hand grenades. They had guns. They were soldier dolls. G.I. Joe's had a, had a duffel bag that my uncle taught me how to pack just like the real army because it was an authentic army, but it was in a smaller size. They were not Barbie size. They were like, I think they were like 14-inch dolls. They were big. How do you know when somebody's dead? Well, we, we actually, I don't think we died much. Sometimes... We'd have there was we'd have my sister's Barbie be a nurse, 
But most of the time, we never even thought about getting hurt. Or we'd both die at the same time, and then we'd start all over again. You know, oops, we're, we're now we're alive. Kids were like the tougher kids. I like Jeff Reefer. I talked to because he was friends with my brother Mark. Um, Jeff Reefer was one of the tough kids from town. Yeah, well, um, yeah. There was um, Russell Whitney was a tough kid from town. They, these are older kids than you, but they were kids. Jackie um, McDermott was a rough kid. You remember the McDermott's? No. Jackie McDermott ended up in jail. But there were certain rough kids in town. Um, I'm the, the the cream puff. People never. I thought because I always I could fight. I could fight. I fought Terrence Fennell in eighth grade, and they people stopped left me alone. They said, "Oh, he's Terrence not." Terrence was kind of a badass too. Terrence was. If you were beating him, he'd say. <laughs> <laughs> up with Terrence. You tell me you never saw him have an asthma attack in the middle of a fight. No? Seriously, you never I saw never him? Saw That's what he would do. He'd, he'd punch and go, <laughs> like if somebody, like as soon as you were coming at him. <laughs> Sister Hilda finally one day said in eighth grade when he pushed me for the last time and I took him and I threw him into the closet and he's going, <laughs> she said, let him go. He deserves it. I heard her say that to the girls in the classroom, and I took Terrence. I mopped the floor with him. <laughs> well, the thing you got to admire about Terrence, though, I always thought he was one of the smarter guys in town too. Would you? Well, he what do you call it? He was a cosmopolitan. He had to read the paper. He was like, I felt finally. I'm thinking finally, I met somebody who's who's a New Yorker. Yeah. Because his father was, a, I guess, um, was a commuter, and he had the Daily News. And Terrence did a lot of new, uh, new going into the city to, you know, going into what it was like going into the city. I don't know where they came from, but I always felt like he was he was definitely my people. His mother was a den mother for the Cub Scouts, and I would have continued with Cub Scouts, but when she decided she quit, they lost. They must have, my name must have got lost in the shuffle, and so when everybody got reassigned different Cubs, different dens, I remember my, I never got an assignment. My mother said, "Well, do you want me to call and see if there's you know?" I said, "I thought they just didn't. They decided they didn't want me as a Cub Scout, so I didn't." You know, a little kid. What do you think? When, they, when your name's not, you know, everybody's got their new dens and you're not in any of them. So you really thought that they excluded you? I thought that. I said, oh, I guess I'm not a Cub Scout material. <laughs> I did. I was. My father used to tell me I was. I was. I was a horrible. You know, like you're not a marine. I'm not raccoon. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not raccoon. I'm not. I'm not a Cub Scout worthy. <laughs> I want to. And you're I thought eight, you're eight years old. No, but I was. That's what I was thinking. I really thought I was like, why the hell didn't they put me anywhere? I was, uh, I was but, a good Cub didn't Scout. Did they explain you the concept of like a piece of paper falling off a table? No, like, I did. My mother said number. that, and I thought she was making up a, a re excuse because she didn't want me to feel bad. And then she she talked somebody into taking me. I didn't want to be. A, I didn't want to be a mercy Cub Scout. <laughs> <laughs> Cub Scout. And I, I, I want to be a pity. A pity yeah, a pity. Case. Yeah. I all all I remember is. The reason I joined Cub Scouts was they got to go camping when you were a Boy Scout. And I loved, I wanted to, the idea of camping in the woods. Today, I, today, you asked me what I, if I could have my druthers, I would live in a tent. I don't like indoors. I love the outside. I've always been, I'm, for some, a city kid, I'm somebody who, who's fallen in love with the, with the outdoors. Yeah. I'm always outside. I, yeah. I, I get claustrophobia if I'm stuck inside. Even in the winter, I, yeah. I'm always outside. Yeah. But what do you call it? Tell me. It was our people who didn't get to grow up in Highland. I remember thinking now, I am so lucky I got to. I would, if I had lived and stayed in Brooklyn, I would, all I, what I tell people about Mr. Softy coming by? That was what summer was. When before, before going to Gravelly Point, I, my brothers and sisters would talk about it because I can remember before, we, before um, Labor Day or Memorial Day, um, before Memorial Day, right. we get Mr. Softy, right. and they used to have this big flatbed truck big truck that came and they must have put rubber in the back and they it made they filled it with water and you get to swim in it for like I guess I guess for a dollar you got like a half hour 15 minutes and they go from neighborhood to neighborhood that was some, that was it so I'm saying like that was just we now we also now wait, wait a minute wait, they would say an ice cream truck no 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 besides the ice cream summer was Mr. Softy ice cream and this stupid flatbed truck that would come once oh, in a while to so the neighborhood the same truck. no but this one flatbed truck that would come and people it was like a rubber they had put a rubber in the bed you didn't have any, you didn't have a pool we didn't no we we. Ricky was a performer from very early on in life, and as I said earlier, he was one funny guy to be around.
Tell me what your name, your age, and your occupation oh my God. is, and how we know each other. My name. <laughs> oh my God. I am after, Joe Brown. After six hours. <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> my name. <laughs> my name is. My name is. Jesus. <laughs> You never get my name out of me, you bastard. Yes, yes, you get it. All this time you thought I was with you. It's part of my evil plan. Oh God, I feel I feel like we've been up like all night. This is like you know four o'clock in the morning. You're like, what the fuck is my name? I can't remember. I know I had it when I moved in here. All right, my name is Richard Abear. I am 58 years old, and I'm from, I'm living now in Keensburg, but I'm from Flatbush to Highlands to all over, and then back. I'm living in Keensburg right now. I am um, currently employed as, um, I work, uh, I cut meats in the appetizing department at ShopRite. That's my, I call it my um, my stipend job, because I only get a stipend, you don't really get a paycheck, but I keep the job for insurance purposes, to have insurance. I'm also a puppeteer, a master puppeteer. I'm also um, a professional Santa. I've been Santa for 40 years. I'm also an entertainer. I sing, dance. I'll do weddings. Whenever anything, if it pays, I, as long as it pays, I can't do anything just for the love of the, of the, doing it for the love of it is not. It's just not in the cards for me because I have to work. I need to make money. As much as I love um, local dinner theater and all that stuff, it's it's really for the non-professionals. I'm a professional. So, like for instance, I was I was schooled at Pace University. Um, I taught, I learned dance through Fred Kelly. I studied voice in grammar from the time I was young with uh, Marcella Bowman. She was an opera singer, and she taught me how to sing. And that's I I thank her. I have my whole my whole life to thank her. But she helped me with learning how to breathe and sing. And if it wasn't for Father David Delzell, because he arranged for her to teach me as a child, he saw that I was talented. And I initially started out singing only for, in church. And I used my gift. I have a I have a, a nice singing voice. I only use it for to to exalt God, and it was all for God because my grandma had told me, "You get a gift from God, you give it back to God." And that's how I initially started. And I would I would sing only church songs, and I started singing at home, but that was only just to entertain ourselves. But I was personally at the time very shy, like I couldn't get up as myself and stand in front of you and sing a song. Whenever I sang a song, and I had to get in front of a crowd. In my mind's eye, I had immediately became somebody else. I'd be pretending to be somebody singing a song. And that's how I still act today. It's never me. I don't go on stage. My character does. And I've, I guess I've always, that's been something I've always used to, to, to save myself because I really am very, very shy. And I'm a stutterer. People don't know that. I stutter. If you've been with me for a long time, you'll notice I do stutter at times. But I've learned not to sound like a stutterer. I think about everything. I, I make a laugh. When I'm often often feel I'm going to start stuttering, I'll laugh to cover it. And also, I will in my mind I start to tap dance because they learned they found that if people learn to tap dance, sometimes stutters will stop stuttering. I'm not kidding. You teach somebody who's a terrible stutterer to tap dance. Oh, literally tap dance. Little to teach you how to tap dance. Take them take them to a class. I thought you meant doing something. Make mind. him tap dance. They stop stuttering. I don't know why. It's something. Something. Who knows? The brain is. But in my mind, I start thinking about when I'm tapping, that it's going on behind my behind my speech pattern, and I stop stuttering. But you'll notice every once in a while, you'll be like, oh my God, he, he did stutter just then. Because I find, my and when I get, catch myself, because I, I, I try desperately not to let anybody else hear it. My parents didn't know I stuttered. I can remember when I finally admitted to someone I stuttered, and they said, no, you don't. And I I said, yes, I do. And I put, took so off I my filters. I took off my filters, and they said, how the hell? How did that? Well, oh, come on, you're pretending. I'm like, no, I'm not. Um, but if you notice, I'm like just talking and not thinking about what I'm doing. So I think it was because I was a nervous child. I really was nervous. So of all the nine of you, did you have a reputation of being like the song and dance? Kid? Oh yeah, everybody would say, "Oh, would Ricky come to? He'll entertain us." This, I, mean, I was also five. annoying because my, my I remember my mother's my cousin Pidge. She'd say, uh, "We want to see the damn Lawrence Welk show. We don't want to watch you." Move out of the way. I'd stand in front of the TV and sing along. Mitch Miller or whatever it was. I guess I could be annoying. And I also would listen to a song on the radio and then I could sing it. I remember people saying, gee, who sings this song? And I'd say, oh, the Eagles. They'd say, well, let them sing it. I'd be like, okay. But you didn't know, it. You, didn't know you were being insulted. No, no, I did too. Of course I did. Like, I'm not stupid.
right, so listen, going back to the acting. I was in second grade, and we, the Sodality, that was the girls' group, they did Rumpelstiltskin. And I wasn't Rumpelstiltskin, I played a court man. And I remember on Saturdays, I used to have to go up, Mrs. Creighton, at Miss, uh, Mrs. Creighton was around then. That was the original Mrs. Creighton. I think there was a new one, but this was the original mother. Sean Creighton was Rumpelstiltskin, I think. I think Sean was. It wasn't Adam. It was Sean. Sean was Rumpelstiltskin. He was only a little kid. She made the pot of gold, and she was the one who shoved all the, the, the hay off and threw the gold on, so all of a sudden the lights came up. It was in a church basement. It was a good production. For uh, I mean, I, I just remember, I, didn't, I can't even tell you what the lines were, but I remember I had to go every Saturday and do and it was stupid because I wasn't one of the good parts. It was one of, you know and I think I I was the one who had to carry all the the hay off to to make bring room for the gold. But I was of course they wanted me because I could I I had memorized the lines probably the first day I got the script. I was that kind of kid. But that was my first my first acting. I think Patty Fennell was the princess, Terence Fennell's sister, beautiful blonde haired girl, and she looked so pretty sitting at the and she couldn't act, but she looked the part. Most of the people couldn't act, but they, they, because I think Adam, I think half the time, or Sean, whoever was Rumpelstiltskin, his mother would whisper the lines off, and he'd repeat them. <laughs> and I was the one who came and said, oh, your majesty, blah, 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 big deal. I got all my lines right, nobody's clapping. I remember thinking that, you know, you know what I mean? And walk off, because I just had like the straight role. I didn't, I didn't have, it wasn't a glory role. Not that I wanted to be Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah. Years later, we, I did the show and we always called them crumpled foreskin. <laughs> it's not, it's not a fun, it's not a fun role. What time was, I mean, what grade, how old were you then? I was like second grade. It was Sister Josita's Sodality. She was the, she was the Sodality nun. So anyway. That was my first, and then when I. When did you realize you wanted to be an actor? That's what I'm wondering. Well, I, I realized I wanted to be an actor oh, when. Entertainer. I used to go on Connor's porch and sing for people after. I'd sing there. I'd I'd go. I liked to go and talk to people. I used to just go over just at night and summer nights. Some kids like to hang out and look chase fireflies. I used to like to go and talk to people. People were from all over, and they were always very nice to me. I because I was nice. I was a polite child, and I've always been a people person. But I found that sometimes they get uncomfortable. Like, why is this kid talking to me? So if I'd inadvertently mention I could sing, and I'd sing for them, and I found. People were nicer when they heard I sang. Like they, then somebody else, a couple sitting over there, would be like, "Oh, he sings so nice." So I'd st I'd stand up front porch of the hotel. Sometimes I, all night I'd sing songs all night long for all different people, and I liked the attention. I, I used to say, "Now I'm going to go home," and nobody would pay attention to me. Um, let's see. I used to sing um, "Roses Are Red, My Love," and every and the ladies would all sit and look. And I remember I liked the fact that they all look at me. And then nobody was saying, shut up. Oh, he's singing again. Shut up. Oh, my God. And my sisters, would they used to have shows during the summer between the house, you know, charge a nickel. And they always, because I could roll my stomachs, my sister would always dress me up like a girl. And they'd sing, itsy, bitsy, teeny, weeny, yellow polka dot bikini. And at the very end, I'd stop and roll my belly. Then they'd dress me up like a flapper. They would always put me in dresses because they, <laughs> they thought only girls should roll their bellies. And I remember thinking as, an, as a kid, as a little kid, there's no way you're ever going to see me in a dress. And I've never been on stage in a dress. I've had people offer me roles saying, you know, you know, I wear, I wear a gown if I'm the prince or a king, but I don't wear, I don't dress like a woman. So that's, you draw the line. Well, because, no, I said, everybody always used to say, oh, you do great drag. Because I did a Mae West voice impersonation. I said, I don't want to be a drag queen. If I was, I'd be the best one you'd ever seen. Because I don't do anything half-assed. Well, especially something like that, I'd have to be perfect at I ended up at the barn is when I discovered What's because the, I, barn? the barn was um, a place in Robson where they, they did shows. It was community theater, but she was a dance teacher, the lady who owned, ran it. They were good shows. My brother-in-law, Bob, directed Damn Yankees. That's why I got the show. But also because I was a male tenor and I could sing the high part. You know, you've got to have heart and the really high part. I, it's the high tenor part. I sang it strong. I, my voice hadn't changed because my, my I hadn't. I had, only one testicle that, that I wasn't, my testicles hadn't dropped, all right? What does that mean? You haven't, in other words, you hadn't matured. My balls hadn't dropped, so I was still saying, I mean, until I had my testicle, so you were had like, my uh, cancerous testicle removed. What do they call those singers? Yeah, the, the ones they snip their, their nuts off. Falsetto? What do they call them? Uh? But I was, I was a, what do you call it, a male soprano. That's what, the, okay. that's what I was told I was. Okay. Now, as an adult, I'm a lyrical baritone. I can sing soprano. I mean, I can sing high, but and I can sing lot low, extremely low, and it's a good thing to be because 
I can do a lots of parts. I can do sing lots of parts. So what was the part? I just was a, I was just a chorus member, but because I could sing so well, I can remember hearing. It wasn't Bob because he directed the musical director saying, "We're really late. It's really bad on that. Really low this part. Have that kid sing it. He's got a big, strong voice, and he can sing from backstage, and it'll it'll blend it." And I thought. That means I'm good. And he, I wasn't standing in front of him. He was telling somebody else, you just tell that kid. He's the voice. Like, and whenever there was a problem with the song, they'd be like, "Sing loud, you sing louder. Because I was on key. Everybody else wasn't. I sang with a bunch of guys. We were ball players. And I did the, I was in the locker room scene. I was, but I was a kid. But I remember thinking, I'm good. And these, are, these in Rumson, in the barn, I consider them like professionals. A lot of professional actors came out of the barn in Rumson. I knew then that I, I was good. And then when I went to Hudson, I switched over to Hudson and they had guys and dolls. And John Rogers sat, sat, said to me, I said, I don't, John, he said, I want you to do Arvite Abernathy and guys and dolls. I'm like, well, who the hell's that? I don't know that part. He's like, well, it's the missionaries. I said, wait a minute, John, I'm a fresh, I'm, I'm, I'm new here. I don't want to piss anybody off. Isn't this a senior show? Give the seniors the leads. I said, he was a family friend, so I could say that. I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to rock no boats. Now, how I, was John Rogers a family friend though? Bob, Bob Walton and him were they were roommates before he married Diane. He lived the Bob, Bob John Rogers is the reason Bob Walton became a teacher. They were both swinging bachelors lifeguards out at Sandy Hook, and somebody a friend of Bob said I, we need a substitute teacher at Hudson. My brother's in law Bob said I don't teach. But John and he dragged John into it. They both got into teaching about the same time. They didn't go to school. They went to college, but they weren't they weren't schooled to be teachers. John Rogers was a football player. My brother-in-law, Bob, I don't know. I think Bob was a basketball player. They were swinging bachelors. They used to go hang out at the ocean and pick up all the high kids from girls from Henry Hudson who were trying to surf. You know what I mean? They were lifeguards. So that's what they were doing that summer. They were both lifeguards. So anyway, the light bulb goes off. You get the part with John Rogers. You get another part with I know. What, what happened with John Rogers was he did scene studies. We had like an assembly. And he had us all audition. We read these parts. I didn't even know what the fuck I was doing. But I read whatever. And he cast me, and it was um, the Diary of Van Frank, and I played Peter Van Zandt, which is not anything like anything Ricky Abra would ever do. And after I finished, and we did it for an assembly, and I worked with a girl, you know, it was just drama. But after I finished, and I went down and I talked to Mary Jane, she said, she's like, I said, like, what's wrong? She's like, that wasn't you up there. I was like, what do you mean? I said, she's like, like, I said, no, that wasn't me. I'm like, no, she said, no, no. You didn't even walk like Ricky. And I said, I, I still get goosebumps because that's when I realized. I said, I, I do this. And I said, I knew when I was doing it, I would say to myself, Peter Van Zandt now enters. Not Ricky Aver, Peter Van Zandt. And I would become the character. And then I thought, she knows me better than anybody. So she would be able to tell if I was pretending to be somebody. But she saw that I wasn't. I, she kept, she, I remember her sitting there going, everybody was amazed that I could do it because they knew me as a, the guy who sang and it was not a it was not a happy it was not a funny it was it wasn't funny it wasn't a funny scene, and it was about me trying to get a kiss my first kiss from a girl. So you transformed yourself. And my girlfriend saw it and I said, you know what, I can do this. This is I, I like that. I like the fact that I I was able to do that, and that's why when I I said I want to do Dev, Tevye, I could be Tev. I used to say to John Rogers, I could do Tevye better than anybody. I I am Tevye, and he'd say, no, you're not. I said George Lenny thought he was Tevye because I had seen him do the part. I used to go to all the musicals they had at Hudson. I like musicals. Yeah, but how could you couldn't talk them into doing Fiddler on the Roof when they had just done it a few years? Yes, they used to do it all the time. As long as four years had passed, it was a whole new group, a new audience. Yeah, they could, and they used to do it all the time. You know how many times they did um, Oliver? So Ricky wanted to play Tevia, the lead from Fiddler on the Roof. He wanted to play the part so badly, in fact, that he lobbied the theater director every chance he got leading up to his senior year. John Rogers didn't get it. He wanted $225 to do the, to, I think, or whatever. $425. They wouldn't give him the damn $25 more. And he said, fuck you, I'm not doing the part. That was when you were seen. Yeah. John Rogers was supposed to direct. So they, they, my, my sister Diane, because she was friends with, her husband Bob was friends with John Rogers. And Diane called me and she called me. She was married to Bob then. And she said, look, John's not going to direct the play, but they'll, they'll let you direct it. 
So you can do your senior play. You can be the director. I'm like, I don't want to fucking direct the play. I want to be a star. John Rogers promised me Fiddler on the Roof. I want fucking Tevye. I remember him saying to Diane, I did Arvide for him when all the seniors were giving me dirty looks because I was a junior and I had a part. And I was a new kid. That's when I, my first year at Hudson. Right, right. They didn't. I didn't know who. They didn't know who the fuck I was. And I remember John Rogers had to like talk me up, saying, "Oh, he's really good, guys. He's, he's you know, he's a nice guy." You no, know, he had to sell them like, on me like, because you would make the show better. Sure, make everybody and, else better. And no, yeah, say it was, was going to help the show and it would help all them. And it was only a crappy part anyway. Only one song, you know, a small part. Nobody would really want to do that. But my song in my in my in that play, I did a song, um, Arvide Abernathy. I sang, "The more I cannot wish you." I stopped the show every night. All the old ladies cried. He's a grandfather of the Sarah, who's the main character. She's she's the one who um, what do you call it? Sky Masterson um, falls in love with the Save Us All Mission girl. He's her grandfather. He's okay. a he's he's a missionary. So um, and he sings a song about her, saying he wishes her a good life, and that's the song. It's called "The More I Cannot Wish You." Velvet I can wish you for the collar of your coat, and fortune. Smiling all along your way, but more I cannot wish you than to wish you find your love, your own true love, this day. Standing there, gazing at you, full of the bloom of youth. Standing there, gazing at you, with a sheep's eye and a licorice tooth. And the strong arms to carry you away. That's when all the old ladies would cry. They'd look at me in my blue eyes and they'd go, it's beautiful. <laughs> and I remember I said, I had those suckers right in the palm of my hands. And I, and I used to stop. I'd stop, ah, uh, and everybody would be like that. Away, and I'd sing that part. And I remember thinking, I knew I had it. But when John Rogers refused to direct during Ricky's senior year because he felt he was being underpaid, Ricky lost his chance to play Tevye. He ended up with a supporting role in a musical called Little Labner. I played Marion Sam in, in um, Little Labner. I had to, I stole the show. The matrimonial stomp was mine. Was my big number, and I wailed at that number. It was like, dearly beloved, we is gathered here today. I'm sorry, to, dearly beloved, to put an unfortunate, miserable crew away. You know, it, that became my favorite, and everybody in the show knew it was my favorite number. So we, we did, we really, we that was the number. We didn't care whether it was not supposed to be this show stopping number. So who directed it again? This is Catherine Clark. She was the art teacher from Atlantic Highlands Elementary. She's the one that chose Little Lambert. She came in saying she directed. She had the show already chosen. She was an art teacher. She she the sets were wonderful. If you remember, the sets looked great. That's why she chose that show. So then you go away to college and like you think you're going to be freshman year. Freshman year. I remember that's when I was leaving high school. I was like, I'm going to make it on Broadway. I'm going to be a star. I'm going to you know everybody's <laughs> going to everybody's going to come see me in shows. And um, that was your attitude with you in high school. Yeah, that's why when I left, so, I won the Pavis Award. I was I won the Performing and Visual Arts Society Award. Freshman year, I auditioned for the first show. Now, this is after having been told we're acting students and how we're going to audition forever and never get a part, right? They tell you that from immediately. You're in New York now. You're not going to be the next star on Broadway. So we have a show. A, sto uh, a show comes up. You, you audition. So, of course, I audition. I'm a freshman. There are only two male roles for this show. I audition. I don't know what the hell I'm I don't even It was called No Exit. But I auditioned. Yes, well, I didn't know at the time. I'm like, oh, no exit. I don't give a shit. I didn't know the play. I guess other people had read it. I was stupid. I just went in. I'm gonna. I can figure out from the sides. You can't figure out Sartre from the sides. It's absurd, though, right, theory? No, it's. Oh my God! It's about no exit. It's about hell. People. Oh, people oh, okay. Okay. People so trapped was, in hell. I thought it was like a Beckett type thing. No, right? no, no. It's people trapped in hell. Okay. And it's their hell. Okay. There's no exit. So they the casting list goes up. I go to look at the casting list. Guess who's got a part? And there were lots of people auditioned. Me and this guy, this other guy. I was like, eh. You know what I mean? I'm thinking, yeah, this is so hard. God, boy, that was real hard. I wasn't the one who was sitting out there going, there was people out there with the script going over and going over their little whole becoming the person. I was only the bellboy. I believe me, I wasn't the main character. It was only me. I was the one nobody could figure out because you didn't know. Am I the bellboy? Am I Satan? 
am I not Satan? Am I somebody who this is my hell? Because the whole, I only come in out during certain parts of the show. The door opens and I'm standing there and I'm like, yes. I bring them in. They don't know, you don't know who I am. But then you realize these are people who are dead. This is hell and this is their hell. And um, I got cast in the, in, the, in the musical, no problem. What was the musical? Um, it was called The Apple Tree. And I was just part of the male chorus. I know The Apple Tree. Oh, it's my favorite show. So at this point, you're going to be a professional actor. Yeah, I'm going to do it. yourself towards. And I decided not to be a professional actor. Just when I almost, I was, I auditioned for Grease. This was the original show, Grease. The first national, I guess the first company to go out of broad New York. And I got called back twice. I didn't tell anybody I was even auditioning. I went and did it. But Fred told them that I could dance. So I got, I had an in whoever the choreographer was. I don't even know who the choreographer was. But Fred knew her, and he got me into the audition. Then Fred said to me, they like you sang well. So you're good. I got called back again. And I said he, I said to him, I don't, Fred, I feel weird, because I would see him every week in class. So anyway, I said to Fred, I don't like the guy. And he said, oh, he likes you. He thinks you're cute. He says, well, watch out for him. He's a little, you know, I mean, he didn't say he was gay, but he said, watch out for him. So finally, Fred said, he really likes you. I said, I want the part, but I don't, I'm not kissing no guy. I'm sorry. I said, I used to say to Fred, everybody thinks I'm gay. I don't know why. Believe me, if, if I could, I've, I said, if, if it would get me a part, I'd kiss you, but I'll throw up. The thought of kissing another man makes me sick. I'm thinking my father, getting close to a man, I think of my father hit me and I'll punch in the face before I'd kiss her. You know what I mean? Like getting that close. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it got down to me and another guy. I went, I came back to Jersey. I told Eddie Anthony, I got it. I'm going in Greece. I got the part. I knew the part and I told that. And I told a couple people. I went back into the city that Monday and got the phone call. The, the other the other kid got the part. I don't know whether he did, did the guy or didn't do the guy, whatever. All I know is, and Fred said to me, I told you not to mention it to anybody until you signed the contract. And I said, I was so fucking embarrassed. I came back to Highlands. I was hiding. I wanted to die. Because everybody was like, well, I hear you're doing Grease. So what influence did that make on you? What I would never, I thought I would never audition, tell anybody about any auditions again. And I was getting a real job. And that's why I said, I'm, gonna be, I'm not going to be an actor and embarrass myself and have to get, wait to be, be let on in the last minute because I won't sleep with some guy. I can't get a fucking job. Bullshit! I'll get a regular job, and then you know you do it by you get earned. You know you you you're rewarded for knowing what you know what I mean. I know what a job what jobs will entail. I became a teacher. I said, uh, and I I went to school for teaching, and I taught religion in St. Mark's. I um taught CCD. I got paid in the city to teach CCD. It was wonderful. With the river on one side of town and the hills and woods on the other side, there was always some adventure for us kids to seek out. The boys especially seemed to be in a quest for danger. Most of us remember climbing Suicide Hill and jumping off the old Highlands Bridge. I can remember lots of bad things happening when my when my brother Mark got caught climbing up under Highlands Bridge to take steal a robin's egg. The cops waited, waited below and brought him brought him home. What happened now? He was he there, he saw a robin's egg, a, a, a bird's nest up under the bridge and he wanted the blue eggs so he crawled he climbed up and of course some old lady saw my brother mark little spider-man that he was climbing up through and they the cops came and arrested him brought him home arrested but him the, for what? because he was well because he shouldn't have been climbing under the bridge you know they were oh the kids were always getting hurt at that bridge that was not that was not a safe place that wasn't a playground that wasn't a teeter-totter <laughs> but I mean, was the charge? What was the charge? Like, stealing oh no, eggs? no, they were just bringing them home, you know. Because yeah. this is guess what your kid was doing again. Yeah, yeah. And we used to climb Suicide Hill. Do you remember Suicide? It was right where East Point is. Yeah, people got serious injuries. That's why we it was called Suicide. I had to climb it every year to prove I was a man. From the time I was like seven, it wasn't. It wasn't like flat. No, was when like, I was, well, you have to understand when I was there. That's why it was called Suicide. This is how it was. And you had to climb this part. You couldn't go over where there was growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were trees that grew out. And you were praying to God that they stayed kept root. They finally put, um, because of the erosion on, on what do you call it, Scenic Drive, they finally they finally planted stuff. But we were there when there was no planting. It was a clear. It was like a cliff face. I'm talking, if you fell off where this part was, where yeah, the yeah, cliff yeah. part was, you were dead. It wasn't a question of, because somebody, I, can, I can't remember who it was, somebody slipped. And ended up like we had to. They had to be air like we, they lowered 
they lowered a what do you call it? The, uh, the, the, the gurney top. down. Yeah, yeah. They lowered and they had you know rescue people to get them out. No, we had we had we had dislocated shoulders. That's how yeah. that's how bad people would get. I, I made it every year. I never slid down, but I used to say to God, please, 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 let me just. And I used to say, this will be the last year. I promise. Next year, I don't care if they call me a pussy. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Well, what would you have to prove? all your buddies, all your buddies, be like. It's time. It's time to do suicide. Oh shit! Sometimes I had a paper route in the middle of the day, yeah. so I would a lot. Of, I got out of a lot of things because I had the paper route. I was yeah. like, I'm working. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got my paper route. So, uh, you know, I you know, I, I, I wish I could go. Fellas, you know, you know, I would have been there. I can remember doing my paper out and we're walking over the ocean. And as we're walking over, this was like, this was, must have been July. Summer had already been in, in full. And somebody going, oh, look, there's those, those ben, Bennies are trying to decide are they going to jump off the bridge. So I'm looking around at my group and I'm thinking, none of these guys have jumped off the bridge. So my brother Mark used to dive off it. So everybody, I guess I, I had the reputation I was Mark's brother, so I must have done it too. I was the one who always screaming over the side, Tuck, Tuck, because he'd be doing a stupid swan dive. Mark, Tuck, Bobby's going to kill you if you don't, if you die. <laughs> so anyway, these guys are doing it. So my friend said, ah, you know, I said, you're all, you all, you never would jump off. They're like, yes, we've jumped off. But wait a minute, you didn't. Did you ever jump off? I said, I don't need to jump off the bridge to prove, you know, what the hell is that proof? No, you were like, I got newspapers to deliver. Right? No, no, I was like, I don't have to, they're like, I, I, I dare you, you wouldn't jump off. The, oh, you're too, I said, I said, I'm too smart to waste my time doing that. I went, well, let's go to the ocean, we want to go into the ocean, fine. I, you know, jumping off a bridge is no big thrill for me. That's what I was saying. But they said, they said, you wouldn't dare. Back then, I said, you don't tell me you wouldn't dare. Because I did stupid things because of dare. somebody said you did. I walked over. Now, this is as we're walking over the bridge. I kicked off my my sneakers, took off my shirt, handed somebody my towel, stepped up and jumped. I did not look. I did not even, like, look around to see where they were jumping from. They could have been Highlands, I mean, the beach in front of Wasis, as far as I knew. I, it could have been the road. I, I didn't even, I was so stupid, I didn't, I didn't even have time to prepare. I could have ended up anywhere. All I'm doing is, and it, nobody explains, they don't explain it to you, that you have a lot of time to think when you're going down. Yeah, yeah. Especially, oh, well, I was in the air saying, God, I, this is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever done. Please, no boat. If made, I don't want to kill somebody. I know, I don't want to be the guy, the fat kid, you know, step, he, he just stepped on a mother of three, you know, who was sitting there, you know, a lady holding her, nursing her baby as they go in. You know, that's what I'm thinking going through my mind. I'm like, please, God, please. And then, then I'm like, no, and I'm going, okay, there's no boats, there's no boats. Okay. Oh my God, I can't believe, this is taking a long time. I, I remember being up there thinking, God, geez, I could have had a cigarette. It seemed like forever. It seemed like, and I'm looking around saying, and I'm like, I know I don't want to go. I want to stay vertical. Nobody freaking explained to me that when you hit, you should point your toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had my feet like this. I felt like, and I said, oh, my God. I, I was like, as I, hit, as I hit the water, I said, oh, my God, God, I hit a dock. Oh, my God, I didn't even look. Was there, there was a dock below me. I'm like, that was wood. And I'm, now I'm in the water, and I'm thinking, I almost touched bottom. I swear to God, I came really close. It hurt. It hurt like hell. It hurt like hitting a sidewalk. I was just like, damn. Holy shit, that hurt. And I'm thinking, nobody ever told me it hurts when you jump, right? I'm thinking all this stuff. And then I'm like, wait, wait, I made it, I made it. Then I'm like, am I paralyzed? But wait a minute, and I'm like, this is all that's going. So, and I'm saying the whole time, God, I promise never again, never fucking again, right? Never, never. Oh, I made it. And I'm going up, I get up, and I look up, and my friends were all like this. Because <laughs> I just like stood up. I didn't give anybody a chance. I was like, here you Yeah, I wouldn't. I just walked off like I did it every day. Just because you were there. No, that I just walked off with it. Like, they all thought I had really been. I'm like, oh my God, you're so cool. You just, as I swam back to shore, I said to God, I will never do anything stupid. And I never took a dare again. They could, you could dare me anything. And I'd be like, I'm, I don't, dares don't work on me. Of course, no childhood goes without at least some sexual education. Ricky, having older brothers, started school very early. But as I was growing up, I remember it was weird because I never, when boys would go off and jerk off together, I knew what my friends were doing and I'd make an excuse and I'd go home and say the rosary. I didn't know why. It was my, I was preserving myself. Just, and I remember thinking, I want to do all this stuff and they'd be looking at dirty, I, I would look at dirty, like, dirty magazines. And they used to say, think, oh, you're a faggot or something. Like, why aren't you, you know, and I'd be like, you know, guys, whatever. So, Rick, 
Do you think that was a general misconception in town that you were gay? Yeah, no, they always thought, you know. Because? If you ask people, if you ask, I'm, tell, I'm sure if you ask people who, like, name the gay people you knew in your generation, I know I'm on people's lists. I know it. I told you I was at Pride with my daughter. My daughter's gay. Yeah. And people, someone I went to high school with came up, gave me a big hug, and said they were so happy that I finally came out. <laughs> and I thought it was hysterical. So I said, I said, I'm with P-Flag, and I'm, this is my lesbian daughter. So then they, like, didn't know what to say. So I gave him a hug, and I whispered in his ear. I said, look, if you want me to be gay, I'll be gay for you. Because a lot of people, I always felt, my, my whole MO was, if I pretended I was gay, I got more girls that way. And I did. I got lots of girls, because girls try to convince you you're not. It was better than trying to, I couldn't go the bravour, you know, the, I'm a big, tough guy, because I wasn't. But if I played the soft man and, oh, I don't think I could ever do that. Oh, what is that? And they were all thinking they were trying, they were going to change me. I don't know. Maybe I, I never had sex with a girl, so I don't know. Maybe I am. You know, I, I have, to, how do I know if unless I've had sex, if unless I've had sex with a girl, I, maybe I am not, maybe I'm not gay. So then they try to help you. Yes. Yeah, so, so they let me have sex with them. To, I'd be like, oh, that was fun. And I pretended every time I was a virgin, I didn't know anything. The best you learn, you have the best sex with girls who think they're teaching you. That's a pretty good trick. And, oh, wait, it's too late for you, ain't it? <laughs> so she was your first? Let me do whatever I wanted to her. And I did. I was young. I was real young. Like how young? I was 12. Are you serious? Do you know what, though? You have to remember, I, my brother Mark was 14. And Mark was, I, I, I didn't idolize Mark, but I watched Mark. My brother Mickey was really the guy, and my family who I idolized, and he was four years older, so he of course was going out with girls. So I watched what they. I didn't. I didn't like talk to him about it. I'd watch what they do, and I, you know, I want to do that. I'll do that stuff. Mark, the only thing Mark could teach me was about how, about women, and Mark was a ladies' man, and he taught me a lot of mechanics. I didn't know stuff. I didn't know. He told me exactly. I didn't learn sex from my father. I didn't learn sex from the street. I learned it from my brother Mark. He'd have me do push-ups with my tongue against the wall. You know, stupid shit like that. I don't know whether it worked. But he'd tell me that, you know, that he was teaching me. teaching me how to do things. I practiced like hell, trying to stretch my, stretch my tongue and do what he, do this, do it, yeah. the, what, the configurations. He, Mark knew what he was doing. Mark was quite the ladies' man. And I mean, Mark and I were not really good friends. But as far as he wanted, in fact... One, our big bone of contention was he wanted my girlfriend, Mary Jane Doyle, in the worst way. And my girlfriend, Mary Jane Doyle, was told if she ever so much as even smiled at my brother, she was dead to me. Who told her that? You told her? I told her that. So Mark was had it for her? My brother Mark wanted to have every girl. Mark had a hundred girlfriends. A hundred. Yeah. And he almost married, he wanted to marry um, Donna Morrison, Elaine Morrison's sister. Do you remember Donna? I remember Elaine because she was a teacher. Well, but her sister, younger sister Donna, they were from Atlanta Cottons, okay. was very much like a young Elaine. They're very sweet. I would, I, if I, if I wasn't going out with Mary Jane, I would have asked, tried to go with Donna. And um, Mark loved Donna, but Donna saw Mark was a Mark had a, always had a, a hundred girlfriends. Mark was always like kissing the girl and looking behind her to see if her, you know she got good hot looking friends. Many people looked out for Ricky as he grew up, and many of them influenced him in his formative years. My grandma Kitty, she was a big influence on me. She was she was very spiritual. She was always trying to um, um, talk one of us into being a priest. So she was always talking spiritual things. But besides that, she talked about life. She had had a rough life experience. And so things she would say, she would give you advice, like she, you know she had been through it. And so I listened. I, I always, it seemed, I was, I guess I always had a thing for old ladies. My grandmas were always, they were always the ones who I like would look up to and listen to and remember what they said. Same with in Highlands. Do you remember Hattie Wallstrom? No. That was um, the Peranto's grandmother. She was just an old lady from the Methodist Church. I could sit and talk to her. I met her. I met her somewhere with something going on in town, and she started talking about the old Highlands and the old. And I could sit and listen to her tell stories forever. Same with I'm trying to think. There's so many. Irene O'Neill's mother was an old was an old timer. Gert, do you remember Gertie's mm -hmm. on Miller Street? When I um I started playing Santa Claus at the at the rec. I first started playing for the, I played for breakfast with Santa, and then I started doing the seniors party. And those ladies I've known since I was a kid. They were like my other grandmothers. I have to say, when oh, I think it was Hillary Clinton wrote that book, it takes a town to raise a child. I was raised by Highlands because I can, I can tell you. Once I got off Gravelly Point, my mother was always home with the baby. When I got to Ocean Avenue, Lane the Mayors, um, who lived, they, she married 
a colicchio. Linda Mayer's mother, who was a barmaid at Wazzy's, you remember Wazzy's, um, she would watch us. Lil Flannery, they lived on that road. She'd watch us. She kept an eye. You go one block over, there was Mrs. Missick, Carol Custer's mother, um, Roxy's, um, They, if you went around that way. I, I went through town. There were people that knew my family and knew us and would keep an eye. The Sadorskis would watch when I got over by Snug Harbor, Mrs. Ostermiller, um, all the Axe sisters, because Mrs. Ostermiller wasn't Axed, and she had sisters all over. I couldn't, you couldn't, I couldn't, you couldn't do one friggin' thing in town without everybody in town knowing what happened. Do you ever remember getting in trouble? No, I was, see, my brother Mark was the one who got in trouble. And I was always the good, oh, that's Ricky, he's good. So people would look at me, I'd go by and smile, and they'd say, oh, it's Ricky, it's only Ricky. So they wouldn't watch to see what the hell I would. And I would do just as bad things. I can remember smoking, being standing on the road smoking, and I was young. And my mother drove by. And she looked right at me, and I continued smoking, and everybody else was ditching their cigarettes. And later on, when I got home, my mother said, oh, you think you were so funny pretending to be smoking. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I'd be drinking on the beach, drinking on the beach in the Highlands. Well, on Gravelly Point, and Bernie Moore come up going, who's that, who's that? I was like, oh, it's just me. Oh, it's Ricky. What? And she's like, what do you got? I said, I got friends here. What are you doing? We're drinking. What would you like? Somebody make Bernie a drink. Oh, Ricky, you're so funny. Oh, I just, I had to see who was here. As long as I know you're here, it's fine. So that's it for the very first episode of Maxie's Taxi, interviews of people you've probably never heard of. We'll stop with Ricky here, but we'll pick it right up in our next episode when Ricky Bear will talk more about growing up in a large Highlands family, his teachers at Henry Hudson High School, and how he discovered the role that he loved and treasured throughout his entire life, dressing and playing as Santa Claus. So please, come back and join us again, and if you'd like to drop me a line, in the meantime, my email is maxon.richard at gmail.com. That's M-A-X-S-O-N dot Richard at gmail.com. I'd like to say some thank yous before I go. To Studs Turkle, Dr. Bob Cole, Dr. Gerald Flannery, and Mrs. Maureen Keeler for my earlier journalistic influences, and to This American Life as my later inspiration. And for this first episode, thank you so much to my friend Ricky Bear, and thank you for taking time out from your busy lives to listen to Maxie's Taxi. See you next time. We're going to have to do a part two, man. Oh, my God. I, I've only asked, like, two questions. Oh, I'm sorry. Why don't you get to your questions? Well, like a second ago, you were just speaking softly. Yeah. So, is it like something when you think about it, you actually tone it? Tone it well, no, I was I was thinking because it was getting close and you have to leave. I thought okay. if I if I start talking quieter and then it sound better when you end the tape. There you go. No, but the, the end won't necessarily be the end because you know I'm going to edit. Oh, and plus oh, we sure. talk a second time. All right, so I might have better stories the next time because I'll remember better. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can talk. Uh, we, there's so many things that we can talk about.